A couple of years ago, uh, well, about, well, I guess it'd be three, almost three years ago now, we started the, uh, the Courage Discipleship School. We did a very, we did a like, very intimate group of us. There were uh, just a few of us, and we sat, basically sat in a setting like this every single Tuesday and Wednesday morning, and for like four hours every day, we just talked about the Bible, and we talked about scriptures, and we talked about, uh, and we talked through all of the, diff- as many of the difficult passages, and had conversations, and it was very inspiring um, to just sit in a room with people like that. In fact, we're actually right now, one of the things our church is working on, kind of very quietly behind the scenes, is we're building a theological library in one of the rooms in the basement, so that we can really properly relaunch that, and have those conversations, and we already have a, a couple of people have already signed up to this fall come back and do the discipleship school again. So we're really, really excited about that. Uh, but so as you guys know, we've been teaching, Don and I teach at Life Challenge every single week. We teach Romans for two hours. Every single week we teach it. And, um, and it, it's a lot to do that every single week for two hours. So different times we've had uh, different people come and join us. Uh, so Don and I will do a lot of them. And then uh, we'd have Chris Hooten would go sometimes. And then Drew and James would go and teach this class. And uh, Drew and James just kept teaching uh, Romans 7, and every time we come back on it, they come back on Romans 7, and uh, so they've been teaching this class. They've taught this several times in class already, and, 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 then, and, and I keep talking to the students, and then they've actually, since then, from class, they've been invited to go teach at chapels at Life Challenge, and we keep getting all this great feedback, and we're like, you know what? We're in Romans 7, and they already taught this class for us twice. Let's do something a little bit different today, and let's actually, we actually, Don and I just talked about it, and we decided we wanted to have uh, these two come up here and actually give their perspective on this passage in Romans 7. Um, and I, I want to say this about both of these guys before they come up, because this is their first time coming up. So please, for you guys, amen them, give them, give them all the love that you can. But um, when we first came and we started all of these things, uh, it was one of those things where it was, we were very much like, man, are we doing the right thing? Are we doing the wrong thing? Is this right? Is this wrong? And, and just, just a, a couple of people who went through it, who were, the whole entire time were so encouraging. And to see the way that they've developed, it's really been like, man, God, I really feel like you're doing something. And they've been two of the most supportive people of our ministry from the very beginning. They're here throughout the week, um, especially, summer's a little different, but especially throughout the rest of the year. They're here almost every day. Drew's working on the podcast studio. James is doing, mowing the lawn, and he's working on video editing and all sorts of different things. They just worked very, very hard and committed to our church for a very long time. So we kind of, so we, I just want you to hear from them. So, um, so it's my honor to, to introduce to you uh, two of our Students who have now come a long way. There, uh, James is actually an, a credential pastor. He's actually a higher level minister of the gospel than I am, according to our denomination. And Drew is very, very close to it too. So uh, I, I just think it's time. So uh, would you guys please just give a round of applause and love on James and Drew? That sounded like Jay. I mostly, I mostly heard Jay there. <laughs> in the crowd always. Participation. That's his thing. He gets, po- he gets all the points. No. The rest of you are pretty behind, actually, right now, compared to Jay. <laughs> Just uh, go to Jacob when he's that it's Oh. My honor. All right, let's hope so. Hey. It's an honor to get to be up here. Um. um. Yeah. Uh, all right. My dad has this yeah, joke that he's oh, told me his whole life. There I am. That if he wanted to be in a band, it would be called The Technical Difficulties because it's a band name and an excuse. So you can blame Dave Borowski in the third row for that. Right. There we go. That's better. All right. So let's start up the way we do every week, praying for the changing of our lives through Romans. 
Mm-hmm. Drew, do you want to pray for us? Yeah. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we just pray right now. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how you are reflected through these words. We thank you for the meaning and the logic behind them and, and how it just goes so much greater. We praise you, God. We thank you for how your words take us further than we could ever go. Lord God, we just pray right now that you would change us through your word, through everything that we're about to be, uh, read and experience, God. Let it be that. Let it be an experience in our whole body, Lord. Not just our body, but our mind and our spirit. Let it be transformative, not just informative, God. Oh, we love you so much. Lord, if there's any words that are not from you, let them fall, fall to the ground before we even say them. Bless your name. Amen. 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 All right, with that being said, let's jump right into it. If you want to open your Bibles to Romans 7, verses 4 through 12, while I read them along on the screen. Woo. Woo. I heard those. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and on the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But since seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's a lot there. Paul raises a lot of questions. This whole thing is kind of an argument. It's almost like Paul's arguing with himself. And a lot of it's rhetorical because he answers these questions in the end, which we'll soon see. Um, I want to preface Romans 7 real quick by saying that Romans 7 is not a picture of the normal Christian life. Romans 7 isn't a picture of what the normal Christian life should look like. There's a lot of echoes back to the Red Sea, to Israel's life, to coming out of the Red Sea and still going the wrong way. So this is, this was Israel's life. There were times where this was Paul's life. I know there are times where this is our lives, but this is not what real Christian life through Christ looks like. Exactly. This is an argument actually of the nature of the law more than anything else. Because if you're reading this and you're thinking, oh, this is what life looks like, sin is supposed to, it just does these things in me and I can't control it, I can't stop it. I mean, if you're going at it thinking that, then you're gonna think, well, why did God give us this law in the first place? That's totally a valid question. Yeah. You're gonna think, um, if I didn't have this law, I wouldn't know I was doing wrong and I wouldn't be beating myself up all the time about it, because I know I do. The law is good. This is an argument of the nature of the law. In verse 12, it just said that the law is righteous, holy, and good. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. 
um, the law is actually exonerated from things that happen in its presence because of sin. And we'll get more into that in a bit. Yeah, um, and then just to continue that preface, if we're going to have a discussion about what the law was, we kind of have to cover what the law was not. Um, when we think about laws, we think of a courtroom setting, we think of just laws and their punishments, but back then it was different. The law was not just a set of rules. Um, in modern times, we think about law and we think about the punishments attached to them. We think about how different consequences for different actions. We think about blight violations, things mm -hmm. like that. But in ancient times, it was set up differently. It was how society was supposed to run because so many civil civilizations were new. Um, even looking back at Israel's neighbor, Samaria, it shows how they continued to develop and continue to change laws as the country was starting to develop. Um, and for Israel in particular, the law wasn't just these rules. The law was a story of their nation, mm -hmm. but the law was also the story of their family. This wasn't just a random group of people that came together. I think like in the West, we think about that because immigration, all these things have allowed us to kind of all come together from different places. But so many of them could trace back mm -hmm. to a family unit. They knew that they were one people. And this, this law, this story of them in Genesis is continuing that. Even with the way it starts, was so counter to what culture was then. It starts with Abraham being called out to start a new tribe. But at that yeah. time, that wasn't how you did it. Tribes didn't break up. Tribes were your safety. It was how things were and how they were always supposed to be. They saw history as cyclical. They didn't want to break that up. So to start the story of your nation as God calling someone out is actually just changing everything. It's this beginning of something so new and so radical. And these laws were really setting them apart. Mm -hmm. Even one of the biggest ones is how they would welcome outsiders, how they would become part of this new family. And that was just so different than what was happening at that time. Kingdoms, nations didn't let new people in unless they were conquering them, unless they were destroying their history. Yeah. Israel allowed them to be part mm -hmm. of them and accepted them like a family instead of conquering like an empire. Yeah. And, and that's what th we're going to be using this term, throwing this term around a bit. What empires do is they conquer. What families do is they include and they welcome. And for a nation to look like that, just imagine what, what just ramifications that could have. It would change the culture around them for the better in so many ways. Have, unfortunately, you can go through the Old Testament and know, you can see that the purpose of this nation of Israel in the Old Testament of the Jewish people, the Hebrew Israelites, was to be this, in, this family that welcomed and included. But you can also see where they missed the mark, where they missed the point, and where when uh, you can see it in uh, King Saul and David and Solomon and all of those stories where Israel all of a sudden wants a king so they can look like the empires around them. And that's when people start building barns and bigger barns to storehouse weapons. And that's when, uh, yeah, Israel just starts looking more and more like empire. If it doesn't look like family, it looks in this nation God called, it unfortunately looks like empire. Back in Romans 1, this was one of my favorite things we talked about that pastors Jacob and Don touched on for weeks on end was this idea of the exchange. Unfortunately, we see it all over this story where they exchanged this infinite, beautiful, good glory of God, this good way 
for a way of this world that would bring them glory, but it is so much of a lesser glory. And as we know, we've talked about this at Ignatium, we do this all the time ourselves. We're constantly exchanging God's way for our way, thinking we know better. Yeah. Um, just to call back something you said in the middle there, it was beautiful how you put it, the idea of, of missing the mark, mm-hmm. of there being a mark, there being a, a way that God wants this done, and we continue to miss that. Um, and honestly, this, the other word that comes up through Romans 7 again and again is this idea of sin. And it's something we don't talk a whole ton about, but I think that if we start to look at how it originated in the Bible and we start to see the first time it was used and how it is, we can start to break it down more. Um, Hebrew, the word sin is this word kata. And now kata can literally mean to miss the mark. It can be used as an archery term, kind of like what Drew was saying. Um, But the very first time it's mentioned is in Genesis 4. It's this idea where Cain and Abel, and Cain is just so angry at his brother, so jealous of God's love for him, and God warns him, and he says, sin, kata, is literally crouching at your door. He describes it like a beast, like a monster, an animal that just wants to conquer Cain. It's not an action that he does, it's a force that's working against him. It's not just something he might do. He describes it like this animal, and the way this animal wants to work is by literally taking his humanity from him. It wants to change him. It wants to stop him from being the way God has designed him to be. So in this story, Cain, he does what we all do. He loses the fight. He tries. Like, he doesn't want this monster to take him over, but it does. But the story doesn't end there. Like, I know so many times when I've heard this, this is where we kind of end it. But right after this, right after he loses this fight, He's so upset, he's so remorseful, he cries out to God. And God offers him this beautiful pre-version of reconciliation where he's like, no, like, I'll be protecting you. I'm still there for you. Even though this beast is one, you haven't been lost to me. And there's this really beginning part of it. But then it goes on and it talks about one of his descendants, a man named Lemek. Mm-hmm. And Lemek is this character that's not talked about a whole bunch in the Bible. He's the first time in biblical history that we see someone just taking multiple wives, which in that time would have meant he was conquering his neighbors. He was taking the things that didn't belong to him. And then his story ends with this disgusting worship song that he writes about himself, how he's the most vengeful, how he's the biggest, toughest guy in the room, how anyone that goes against him, the vengeance that God had for Cain, he's like, no, I can avenge myself. And it's just this downward spiral. Like, Cain was remorseful. Lemek is proud of how evil he is. Mm-hmm. He's proud of how he's lost this fight with his beast. But then it gets even worse. That first act of Genesis ends with another story. The Tower of Babel. And now, not only is it one person conquering, now it's all these people conquering, saying that they can be like God. They build this huge tower and say they want to be like God. Babel is just this next step in this story. It's this constant downward spiral. This is what we mean by when we say the law was the story. It was the idea that this is how it is. This is how the human condition got where it is. It starts with one person being so remorseful, Mm -hmm. wanting, like, can't believe that he just did this to his own brother, to someone being proud of what they're doing, to this, this empire that comes together. And 
if you are a student of history, Babel actually kind of goes on and conquers so much of the Middle East, builds this huge army. Like, it's just this next step mm -hmm. of losing what it was the original intention of God. It's this next step in that downward fall. But we're going to see later that when Paul talks about the law being dead, he's actually talking about this idea that that story is over. Yeah. That's not our story anymore. Like, it's really this beautiful story you want to tell. Yeah. What's something that's wild in all of that, that sin crouching at my door, that sin at work we're, uh, in us we're about to read about a little more, it, it's using all this language of sin. We, we think about sin all, a lot of the time as, oh, I sinned. Or, you know, like it, sin to sin as a verb. I wronged my brother, like that as a verb. But in a good chunk of Romans 7, it's using sin as a noun. So this thing crouching at our door, it's not an action, it's an entity. It's, it, he's talking about it at least like it is a, a live thing that seems like it has a will and a personality and agency and all of that. Um, and there's this interesting thought here that I've been finding in this passage that sin, I'm defining it here as an entity, as something that I partner with when I think I know better than God. When I am operating in this exchange, when I am exchanging the glory of God for thinking I know better, I know how the world can change, I know the way that my neighbor should act, I know he needs to just fix it himself, I know all these things. It's, it's so unfortunate. I find myself doing this all the time, and I'm sure we all do. I was rude to a guy the other day, and I beat myself up about it after. I'm like, why did I partner with that? And this dumb, lingering thought in the back of my mind, why did I partner with that? It blows my mind. Um, in Romans, 5, uh, Romans 7, verse 5, um, it says, working in our members, sin, working in our members. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. The sins at work in our members. Members, think about fingers and arms and legs and toes. We're talking about extremities. We're talking about the outermost part of us. And this is also where the doing happens, right? This is where we're walking, kicking, crouching, sitting, where we're waving, sinning with our hands, all these things. But if you're thinking about it that way, this is the outermost part of us where these actions are taking place. And this sin is at work and warring in that part. Which leads me to a question when I'm reading this text. Man, like, there's this thing operating in me, and I don't know why I partner with it sometimes. And I just get down on myself about these kind of things, and it leads me to the question, is there anything good in me? When I get to the lowest of the low, it makes me think, is there anything good in me? He does answer this question at the end of Romans 7, and we'll yeah, talk about that in here in a few moments. Awesome. Um, so just to kind of pull back a little bit to this idea of sin being this thing that wants to twist us from our original image and stop us from being really what God intends us to be, this human, this, the center of us. If the extremities are our actions, the center is going to be who we truly are and what we truly are. 
it raises this question, like, what does that mean to be human? What does that mean to really function in the way God has intended us to be? What's our mm-hmm. purpose? And if we just continue to go back to the very beginning, we see this answer right there of God breathing on dirt and making us, and that making us his image. And that time, the idea of the image of God, images of God were where you showed how much you loved God. It was where you showed to an idol how you would love it was through how you treated its image. But at the end of the day, God says, no, like I'm going to make each and every person here my image. Mm-hmm. You were created in the image of God. And when we love our neighbor, it shows God how we love him. Mm-hmm. It continues to show that. Jesus sums it up in the great commandment. He says, love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. I don't think he was giving two separate answers when he says that. I think it's the same thing. Yeah. There isn't a big difference between loving God and loving your neighbor. Because when I love Drew, mm-hmm. I'm loving the image behind Drew also. It's and when not you just do me. it unto the least of these, you do it unto me. Exactly. Uh, Paul puts it a little differently, though. He talks about how he calls that the, uh, the law of the spirit mm-hmm. instead of the law of a written code. Yeah. And now this is a really interesting thing because he, this word spirit... In Greek, it's the word pneuma. Um, in Hebrew, it would be the word ruach. And ruach and pneuma, both, Hebrew and Greek, are the word for spirit, this thing that leads us, this thing that guides us, that allows us to now live the way that God has intended us to live, according to Paul. This thing that is the same ruach, mm-hmm. pneuma, that brings Jesus back to death, that's alive in us. But it's also the word for breath. Yeah. The thing, God, the thing that God puts on the dirt to make you his image, the thing that separates you from everything else is his spirit, his breath. So I think that that shows that really the spirit, the law of the spirit is the ability to just finally live by the spirit, to Mm -hmm. see our neighbor as an extension of God and to love them so fully, to love them the way God's loved us, the way he continues to give of himself and continues to just pour out love and life on us no matter what we do to him. That should be our intention when we go to our neighbor. It's all about your intent. He just talked about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. The le- think about the letter, the way the law is written down. It uses letters. These are the written words. And some of them, if you follow them exactly, can probably take you to some weird places. But every law has a point to it. That's the thing behind the words. There's a heart to it. There's a heart behind it. My f- one of my favorite images in the world of this is something that just in prayer being here throughout the weeks and years um, I've noticed is look up here. Look at this stained glass window. If you can't see it, I'm okay if you move to see it. I think this is pretty great. There's this star. It's the Star of David. I mean, that represented Israel and the law and so many things. Let's say it represents the law. Let's say it represents the letter of the law just the story of this people, the way it's written. It has these six points, and it's on the forefront of this image. Six, I've heard it said six is the number of man. It's this number of incompleteness, if, if you believe it. Um, but behind it, you have these beams of light, and if you count them, there are seven. There are seven beams of light coming out from behind this star. There's this glory behind the letter of the law. There's a glory that is so much greater. You see, if 
you believe it, seven is the number of completeness. Seven is the number of wholeness. Humanity is not whole. Humanity is not complete without the point, and the point is Jesus. The point is Jesus Christ. This intent that God has, God's heart for all of this, is the thing behind the thing right there that we can see so clearly in that image, and we can see it even more clearly in that image. So the law is exonerated, I would say the law is exonerated from things that happen in its presence because of sin. Uh, we see in verse 7, it opens with, should we say that the law is sin? By no means. Paul doesn't seem to think so either. Paul doesn't seem to think that the law is sin either. You see, laws are weakened by the flesh. As, they, as all laws often are weakened by the flesh. The law is weakened by the flesh. I ran a stop sign the other day. I shouldn't have done that. That thing was there for a reason. There's probably a story about why that was there. Weirdly enough, there are some stop signs in my neighborhood that are no longer there that I've gotten tickets for running before, so I'm curious how that works. But um, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Jacob told us that hilarious story about ding-dong ditching a few weeks ago. Laws have a why, and laws have a story behind them. Laws are put in place for a reason. They have an intent. They have a why. And I actually want to tell you a story real quick. A few years ago, gosh, it might have been 10 years ago by now. That blows my mind. I have a friend, some of you actually may know him, and he gave me permission to tell this story, but I'm not going to say his name because I think it's funnier this way. That 10 years ago, so uh, our family, we grew up in, we grew up, we moved all over the place. My dad worked for a Christian radio station, um, and it felt like our whole family worked for that radio station, honestly. Whenever they had events, whenever we, they would be at concerts or introducing bands on stage or at coffee shops, doing a live morning show. It seemed like we'd wake up early and go, and it was the time of my life. I don't know if I knew it at the time. I'm just thinking back on it, and I have nothing but fond memories about this. And there's a festival every year. It's actually going on possibly this weekend called the Big Ticket Festival. It's in Gaylord, Michigan, and if you don't know where that is, it's right here, three and a half hours north. I might be going tomorrow somehow. And I just found that out, maybe. Um, so this festival is three days. There's camping, all these things going on, and there were these big Christian bands. I, if you were a Christian 10 years ago, or uh, if you're a Christian now, I hope you are. Um, talk to me and Jacob after, and James after if you're not. Um, we, we would go see these bands. If you're in Christian culture, you might know, like, Toby Mac was there, Switchfoot was there, Need to Breathe was there. Uh, the Newsboys were there. And I had this friend who was obsessed he was so obsessed with the Newsboys. He, he laughs about it now because I got permission from him to tell this story. I sent him these photos. He couldn't believe that these existed um, and that he did these things. Uh, he knows. Um, <laughs> but he was obsessed with the Newsboys. He knew every lyric to every song. He knew the names of everyone in the band, past, present, and future somehow. Um, all these things. And the Newsboys were going through this change if you know the Newsboys, they wrote songs about having breakfast in hell. They wrote songs about um, the shine and joy and all these things. 
and they were famous for having their drummer spin around sideways. It was just crazy. So crazy. If you ever get a chance to see them, I think they still do that. Um, and they were going through this change where their lead singer was kind of stepping down. He was this Australian dude named Peter Furler, wrote all their songs. He wasn't even the original lead singer. I think he was the original drummer or something. But he was stepping down, still going to write their songs. I don't know how that works. And if you know these names, Michael Tate from DC Talk was replacing him as the lead singer. So now we've formed a Christian supergroup. It's a very niche thing. It's a very niche, niche, one of those. And, right, well, right, good question. One of them's from Michigan, so that was kind of cool. Um, two of them are from Michigan. But Peter Furler was following them on this tour with the new lead singer. And he would come out on stage while the new lead singer was up there for two songs and kind of pass the torch to Michael Tate, to the new lead singer of the Newsboys. And it was this really cool moment. Like, they're on stage together, they're palling around. He's like, ah, I trust this guy. And now we're all like, yeah, we accept you. Um, after 20 years of having Peter, sure. Um, and my friend Jason, all he wanted to do was see Peter Furler one last time to touch the hem of his garment, <laughs> to get as close as he, I said his name, I'm sorry, as to get as close as he could <laughs> to this man, Peter Furler. I actually have some pictures here to show you how yes. kind of creepy this was. Jason's the one lurking in these photos. That's actually not even the lead singer, that's the drummer. The guy in the forefront's a good friend of mine who's going to be in my wedding. I can't believe we used to dress like this and that hair. But that yeah, go off. to the next slide. You can still see Jason lurking in the background. He just wants to brush up against him. There's nothing wrong with that. All right, don't go to the next one. <laughs> don't go to the next one just yet. So um, I was taking pictures for my dad's radio station, and we had these like little media passes. My dad was really good about like being responsible with them and letting us know we needed to be responsible with them. Don't go assaulting band members backstage, things like that. Didn't tell Jason that, I don't think. And uh, so Peter Furler, he's about to walk off stage. And after the last time he's going to be on stage with the Newsboys, I think he has like a million times since then. And Jason grabs me with my media pass, just blows through security or something. This is all a blur to me. And we can see a series of several photos. I only found one, unfortunately, where you know that thing where when you're taking a picture with someone and your smile starts to fade because you've taken several, but then you're just annoyed that you're still there? Imagine that if you just got off stage and all the energy that that probably took up, and now you're being assaulted by an annoying super fan. It was unfortunate. But laws are there for a reason. Laws have stories behind them. And I don't know if this is correlated, but the following year, no one was allowed backstage anymore at Big Ticket Festival. So I stopped going. <laughs> <laughs> Did like your dad know this story before today? That's just kind of what I was wondering through that I'm whole sure thing. He, I'm sure he had a good talking to. Okay. Oh good. <laughs> oh good. Jason, tell us about why prohibition does I'm sorry, James. Whoa. Whoa. I I've got the same baby face, it's mm. fine. Um so the next little part in Romans is this uh is the passage on coveting. So it says for, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, 
had not said, you shall not covet. But since seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Mm -hmm. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So Paul is kind of going into this story of the law, the why behind the law, why it had to be there. Um, and he picks a really interesting law to go with. He goes with this, the Tenth Commandment. Mm -hmm. He's actually hearkening back to the Tenth Commandment, which is this idea of not coveting your neighbor's ox, house, all these, whatever they had back in the day. Um, but the actual word that's used in that commandment is this Hebrew word, kamad. So kamad literally means to like take delight in something. Mm -hmm. You kamad in your spouse if you have a happy marriage. You kamad in your home if you just enjoy being at home. It's where you take joy. It's where you take delight. And we kind of read it weird. We think of it like a rule of a do not, do not do this. But in Hebrew, the idea of coveting was it was literally just a reward. Coveting was the reward for following the rest of the commandments. If you followed it, you have a marriage that you're willing to take delight in because you're not full of adultery. If you yeah. follow the part of honoring your family, you kind of continue this cycle. It's, it makes it your life the kind of thing that you would want to take delight in. Why would I want my neighbor's life if I'm living the life God wants for me? There's no need to want anything else. So it, the idea was I'm going to continue to take delight in that. But Paul saying in that, that this thing that was meant for so much good, this original story of that law was to be a reward, it twists, it gets wrong, it kind of becomes this thing where he's like, well, now I can't do that? Yeah. Well, now I want to do that. It skewed the whole way that it was meant to be. Um, I heard this really interesting story once. It was a really great idea. Um, a man was homesick from work, and he's just kind of looking around his house, Nothing to do. The TV was off. He couldn't figure out what to do to stay that he just couldn't go to work. And he looks out his window, and his neighbor had just bought this amazing security system. There's wires to every door. There's alarms. It's one of those almost futuristic ones where you can see the entire house. And he's watching these guys work because he has nothing to do that day. And he's watching as they wire every bit of the house, trying not to miss a single spot but he notices that they miss one window on the first floor. And he sees that and he thinks to himself, wait, what if someone breaks in? What if all someone has to do is open that window and they can get into the house, the house isn't safe. And he starts to think of all the ways that he knows when his neighbor isn't home. He starts to think of all the ways a robber could come in and take these things. Mm -hmm. But as he continues to think about it and he lets his mind sit on it, it's no longer when someone else can do. He starts to think of how he could rob the house, how he has this knowledge now, how he sees the weakness, the loophole in this thing that was intended for so much good. Mm -hmm. Having a security system in your house is a great idea. It protects it, it keeps it safe, it has a boundary with you and your neighbor, but he sees that good thing and he twists it. And that's exactly what we do with the law. Even at the very beginning, going back to this original first part of Genesis, it's just a story about prohibition. And it's the story of how prohibition doesn't work. The best way to make someone want to do, I shouldn't say everyone, the best way to make me want to do something is to tell me not to do it. Maybe that's a problem with me, but it makes this idea in my head that I continue to want to do the same thing that no one, that I'm being told not to. 
And I bet if we all take an inventory of ourselves, we kind of land in the same idea. Prohibition doesn't work. That's literally how the Bible starts with a story of God putting a rule saying, do not touch this. And what's the first thing we see them do? They touch it. They continue to do it in their minds until they see that it's all right. I think of it like this. In the late 90s and early 2000s, Christian parents had a terrible idea. It was called a purity ring. And it kept telling people to not do something that they already wanted to do. And when you do that, it doesn't end well. You can ask anyone that ever had one. But it's this idea that prohibition doesn't work. Because at the end, you just continue to think about it. Just like that man with the security system, it starts to take more space in your brain because it keeps being told to you. And then you start to think, why can't I stop thinking about this? Why can't I stop thinking about sin? Why do I just always want to do the things God tells me not to? And then you start to think, man, I must be a bad person. Once you continue to think about all these things, it starts to breed shame in your life. And shame is the breeding ground for sin. Mm -hmm. There's no better way to have sin in your life than to feel shame. Shame is going to stop you from connecting with people that can help you. Shame is going to get rid of your accountability. Shame is going to continue to break you down, and it's going to continue that cycle that we saw with Cain. Shame is where sin just loves to be. But there's a solution to that shame. Mm -hmm. It's grace. Grace is the acceptance that we don't need to do anything. But what's crazy about grace is that that acceptance that we don't need to do anything, that's what lets us change. It's like the most backward system you can imagine. But if you want to change, you need to understand that you don't need to. That God's grace and his love has always been there for you. From the beginning, from before you knew about him, before you were born, God's love is so amazing for you that he's continued to show this grace over and over Mm -hmm. again. And knowing that, knowing the level that you're loved, knowing the level that you're accepted by God, that's what lets you change. Mm -hmm. In uh, Romans 7, verse 9, it says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. It's those loopholes. Deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. If sin's finding a way through these loopholes in the law, how can you say the law and the commandment are holy, righteous, and good? It's the spirit of the law. It's the thing behind the thing is imperfect. It's incorruptible. The point of it all, this God's heart for all of it, that's the thing. It's holy, righteous, and good. And that answers Paul's question. Is the law sin? Should the law be considered considered sin? Back in verse 5. No, the law is good. The law is holy, righteous, and good. But this leads me to back to this question because I still find myself having this thing in me that I partner with when I think I know better when I think I know better than God, when I think that my way is going to take me further or the way of this world is going to take me further. These things sound silly when you say them out loud, right? Especially compared to the infinite glory of God. 
I want to talk real quick about verse 21. We're jumping ahead because Paul does answer this question. Is there anything good in me? Verse 20, chapter 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Hand. We're talking about those extremities again, the sin at work in our members and the doing part of us. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knows the answer to this. This is a, it's a rhetorical question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Serving both laws isn't who we really are. Serving both laws isn't the truest thing about us. You see at the beginning there in verse 22, it says, For I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. We can talk about the outermost part of us all we want, but in our innermost being, the truest part about us, it knows the thing behind the thing, this heart of God, this law of God, we're calling it law, it's the spirit of the law, and it delights in it. It leaps when it recognizes it. There is something in me that I partner with. It's deep inside of me. And I find that it takes me further than the law of man ever could. And it recognizes and it values the things that really matter, the things that are eternal, and it delights in them. This week, I got several times the opportunity to stop by the reconciliation table that's being built on Rodemaker and Army over there. And I saw people peeking out their windows. I saw people walking down the street just to take a look. I saw Frank jumping at the opportunity to help any chance he could. I saw people who aren't even from here welding steel for something that I hope that they get to eat at a table with, at, with us at one day. All these people have something in common. In the deepest, truest part of who they are, the good, reconciling thing that was resounding and powerful about this table this of reconciliation that is being built, the thing about it that looks like Christ, they were recognizing that in the deepest, truest part of who they were and delighting in it and leaping to help and peeking out their windows and wondering what this good, true thing was. These are the things that last. These are the things that matter. And I believe in the deepest, truest part of who we are, there's this goodness of Christ that will recognize those things. And when we partner with it, it takes us further, further than we could ever go on our own, further than the ways of this world will ever take us. It's a way that looks like family. It's a way that has arms wide open and welcomes the outsider, it welcomes the other. It recognizes where God's working in their lives and brings that out. 
I think it's the most powerful thing in the universe, and it's Christ. He's so good. We're going to take communion in a few minutes, and we're going to sing a song. And while we're here at this table, ask God what he's doing in this. What good, great thing that looks like Christ is resonating out of this with you? And how can you carry that out throughout your week? How can you manifest in your life, in your doing members, the thing behind the thing, the point of it all, the goodness behind the letter, the spirit behind the letter of the law?